I'd like to read from our scripture passage for this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'd like to read verses 14 through chapter 6, verse 1. Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's and women's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Hear the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I'd ask, Lord, that in this moment, that you'd allow that word which you inspired Paul to write, and which had such an effect upon the Corinthian believers as they heard it, to also inspire our hearts, and to allow us to understand what the true nature of the Christian life is, of that great salvation which you've provided for us. Lord, allow your Spirit to do his inspiring work again as we listen, as we hear, and as your word is proclaimed. Lord, speak to us. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Sometime we have, sometimes we have biblical passages that we need to actually grapple with and just wrestle through. And I think we find one of these passages here within this passage. I have been captivated by the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a long time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 is one of those verses in the Bible that seems to communicate a message that is filled with impossibilities. How can we understand it? How can we make sense of what Paul is trying to say in this verse and the other verses surrounding it? Paul writes, God made him, that is Christ, God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What in the world does Paul mean when he says that God made Christ to be sin for us? Well, there's several possibilities. One possibility that some groups have suggested is that Paul meant that Christ was made to be sinful for us. They argue that since Christ took on human nature and human nature is sinful, 
And since it's sinful, then Christ himself was made sinful. Now, one of the reasons why I think it's very important for you to study to prepare yourself for ministry is that you can learn to see through this type of faulty interpretation. You know, there are a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts and notions that we are constantly being bombarded with that someone somewhere said that it's biblical. And then they quote some biblical passage, and we're supposed to be convinced that it's biblical because of that. Well, just because someone quotes a verse from the Bible does not necessarily mean that it's actually biblical what they're saying. Some people claim that this verse in 2 Corinthians 5 means that Christ was actually a person who sinned during his time on earth. He became sinful because he became a man. When we read the New Testament, though, it becomes very clear that the writers understood Jesus of Nazareth as being without sin. For instance, John describes him as the spotless Lamb of God. In 1 Peter, we read explicitly that Jesus committed no sin. The writer to the Hebrews describes Jesus as a perfect high priest who is holy, blameless, pure, and set apart from sinners. And Paul himself, actually in this passage, tells us that Jesus did not know sin, which means Jesus had no sin. Now, I know that there are groups today who teach that Jesus must have sinned at some time within his life. The Bible, however, teaches us that Jesus did not sin. But what does this mean, then? Another suggestion has been given to explain what Paul meant by saying that Christ was made sin is the suggestion that Paul means that God made Christ a sin offering for us. In this way, these commentators maintain that Paul is saying that God made Christ the sacrifice, the sin offering for our sins. Now, this option is certainly better than the first option. I think you can see that immediately. And at first glance, this understanding seems to be very helpful. In the letter to the Hebrews, the writer talks about how Christ, the perfect high priest, offers himself as the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. With this idea in mind, the suggestion that Paul is saying that God made Christ to be a sin offering for us would seem to make sense. But there are a couple of problems that this, that this possibility brings to us, and it makes this possibility unlikely, if not impossible. First, the word for sin that is used in verse 21 is never used in the New Testament to represent the idea of sin offering. The word that Paul uses for sin in verse 21 is the word hamartia. There's your Greek word for the evening, so you can be really thrilled by that, I'm sure. Well, this word, this word is never used anywhere within Paul's writings or even outside of Paul's writings in the New Testament to depict the idea of sin offering. In addition, Paul uses the same word for sin two times in verse 21 in close proximity to each other. Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Well, the first usage of this word sin in this verse cannot mean sin offering. It doesn't make sense to say that God made Christ who knew no sin offering to be a sin offering for us. As a Jew, Christ certainly knew what sin offerings were. But if Paul did not mean sin offering with the first usage of this word for sin, why would he use the same word 
to mean sin offering in the second usage of this word. It doesn't make a lot of sense for Paul to use the same word for sin, the word hamartia, two times in the same verse with two completely different meanings. And it is extremely improbable that Paul would be thinking of two completely different meanings for the very same Greek word, especially when he never conceives of this word as sin offering anywhere else within his writings. And so it seems very unlikely that Paul is saying in this verse that Christ was made a sin offering for us. There's a third possibility. In his well-known commentary on 2 Corinthians, Alfred Plummer writes, we must face the plain meaning of the apostles' strong words. In other words, when Paul says that God made Christ to be sin for us, he's referring to the harsh, evil reality of sin. God made Christ to be sin for us. God did not make Christ sinful, and he did not make him somehow into just a sin offering. Rather, in some incredible way, God made Christ to be sin, to be sin for us. Now, I know that this is rather difficult to understand, but it seems to be what Paul has in mind. Somehow, Christ took on the ultimate, deadly, damning reality of sin upon himself completely. But this kind of brings us right back to where we started, doesn't it? What does Paul mean when he says that God made Christ to be sin for us? Well, in trying to understand this verse of Paul, I've tried first of all to see if we could gain a better understanding by looking at the word sin. But it seems to be very clear that when Paul says sin, he really means sin. He's talking about the reality of sin. Now, I think this is very important for us to realize, but I still find myself struggling to try to understand exactly what Paul means then in this passage. And so maybe we need to turn our attention to a different part of this verse in order to grasp the true meaning that Paul is communi communicating to his readers and also to us in this significant passage. Paul writes, God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. For us. Maybe the mystery of this passage can be explained by looking at this phrase, for us. What does it mean that God made Christ to be sin for us? When we look at verse 21, it is evident that Paul sees the first part of the verse as resulting in the second part of the verse. In other words, Paul says that Christ was made sin for us in order that, it's a very important phrase, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The purpose clause, in order that, makes it very clear that Paul understands the first part of the verse, Christ was made sin for us, as causing or producing the second part of the verse, namely, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so within verse 21, Paul contrasts and balances sin with the righteousness of God. On the one side of the equation, Christ is made to be sin. On the other side of the equation, we see that we become the righteousness of God. But how does Christ's being made sin result in our becoming the righteousness of God? The answer to this question seems to be uniquely related to our understanding of this prepositional phrase, for us. It happened 
for us. We are able to become the righteous of God in Christ because Christ was made to be sin for us. Traditionally, there have been two different ways to interpret this phrase, for us. One group has chosen to interpret this phrase, for us, as meaning, in essence, instead of us. Thus, they believe that what Paul meant to communicate is the idea that God made Christ be sin instead of us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Just as Christ, who knew no sin, is condemned as if He were a sinner, so we, who know no righteousness, are considered to be justified as if we were the righteousness of God. Thus, we both become something which in reality is not true. Namely, according to this group, Christ becomes sin, which is really not true, and humanity becomes righteous, which is also really not true. This is the essence of the theory of substitution. Through substitution, the substitute takes the place of another so that the one who does not, so that one does not personally participate in the condition that is rightfully his. He takes his place. For those who advocate this position, the message which Paul communicates in verse 21 is that Christ takes the punishment of sin, which is not his own sin. He takes this punishment upon himself in the place of the sinner, so that the sinner can be imputed with righteousness, which is not his own righteousness, and, be, and can be considered justified in the eyes of God, even though he is not in reality a just or righteous person. In both cases, Christ does not really participate in the sin of the sinner, nor does the sinner really participate in the righteousness of God. Sin and righteousness, by means of substitution exchange, are both the result of imputation. Neither Christ nor the sinner truly shares in the experience of sin, on the one hand, or righteousness, on the other. Now, when we look closely at what Paul is saying in verse 21, then we run into a real problem with this substitutionary understanding. First of all, we've already seen that Paul really means that Christ became sin for us. From a substitutionary understanding, Christ only seems to take on sin, just as the sinner only seems to become the righteousness of God. But this is not what, act, what Paul actually says. Paul says that God really did make Christ sin for us. There's also another problem with interpreting verse 21 with a substitutionary sense. In terms of pure exchange or substitution, substitution is the idea of exchange, one instead of the other. In terms of pure exchange or substitution, verse 21 remains very puzzling. Christ became sin instead of us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. With this understanding, it's not very plain how Christ being made sin results in the sinners being made the righteousness of God. In fact, if you follow the strict logic that Paul seems to be using in this verse, the substitutionary understanding seems to imply something that is actually ridiculous. You see, with the substitutionary meaning, the thrust of the verse seems to infer that Christ became sin instead of us, so that we might become the righteousness of God instead of Christ. 
That's not what Christ means. That's not what Paul means here. The more natural and understandable way of interpreting the phrase for us is not in terms of substitution, but in terms of representation or participation. Let me explain what this means. When Paul says that God made Christ be sin for us, he does not mean that Christ became sin instead of us. Rather, the Christ who had no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, for our benefit. Christ identified himself completely with the hopeless and helpless state of sinners. The German scholar Hofius writes, according to Paul, Christ did not simply set, step up beside the sinner in order to take something, namely his sin and his guilt, away from him. Rather, Christ became identical with the sinner so that by the giving of his own life, he could lead the sinner into a relationship with God, unquote. Namely, Christ could lead the sinner into a righteous relationship with God. You see, in both halves of verse 21, we can find a dual process of identification and interchange taking place. Not exchange, but interchange which takes place. In the first half of the verse, Paul says that Christ became identified completely with sinful humanity. He was made to be sin for us on our behalf. Christ participated in the full consequences of sinners, and he died on their behalf as their representative, even though he himself was without sin. In the second half of the verse, the same dual process of identification and interchange is described. Christ shared in our experience in order that, in Christ, we might share in his experience of becoming the righteousness of God. In other words, by identifying himself with us, Christ became what we are in order that we as believers in Christ might become what he is. Namely, the righteousness of God. It is so important for us to realize that the death and resurrection of Christ makes a true and bona fide difference in our life and in our existence. The death and resurrection of Christ does not simply mean that God plays a game of hocus-pocus with our sin. Now you see me, now you don't. Paul is not telling us in this verse that God and Christ are playing a game of make-believe with our sin and with his righteousness. The death and resurrection of Jesus does not result in our salvation because God is somehow compelled to pretend that Christ is sin, even though he's not, and to pretend that we are the righteousness of God, even though we are not. No. Paul tells us that there is a fundamental solidarity that exists between Christ and the believer because Christ identified himself with us and with our sin and with our death. We are enabled through our faith and identification with him to participate in his life and in his justification. Because of our solidarity with Christ, because of our identification and participation in him, we actually can and do become the righteousness of God. Praise his name. Our solidarity with Christ is so great. It is so profound that Paul describes the believer as becoming a part of the body 
of Christ. Just think of it. Paul envisions the reality of our unity and solidarity with Christ to be so encompassing that he says that we are actually Christ's body. This is not substitution language. This is language of participation and solidarity and unity. Paul describes, also describes this solidarity with Christ as being a situation in which the believer is in Christ. The believer is in Christ. In verses 17 and 18 of our chapter here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, then Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. This is not make-believe language that Paul is using here. This is reality language. It is the language of salvation and victory over sin in and through Christ. After Paul describes the salvation which is ours in and through Christ in verse 21, he says to his Corinthian readers in verse 1 of chapter 6, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. God's grace is demonstrated to us through the death and resurrection of His own sinless Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in verses 16, 17 and 18 and in verse 21 that the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf was an act of God's grace to enable us to become the righteousness of God. The old is gone, the new has come. Let us not cheapen God's grace by thinking that His grace simply means that God turns a blind eye to our sin. Let us not cheapen God's grace by believing that the death and resurrection of Jesus simply means that God pretends like our sin is no longer there so that we can continue to live in sinful habits and patterns. This is not what Paul is saying here at all. In 6.1, Paul even seems to be speaking against this view by urging the Corinthians not to receive God's grace in vain. Within the context of this passage, Paul is saying that we are receiving God's grace in vain if we say that Christ's death and resurrection does not actually produce a righteous and holy life before God. We're actually receiving God's grace in vain. And we cheapen the grace of God into a meaningless game of make-believe. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Did you hear that? Cheap grace is the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say. And so everything can remain as it was before. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. This kind of thinking, says Bonhoeffer, is nothing short of heresy. Paul tells us about costly grace in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ was made sin on our behalf. He died for us in order that we might actually become the righteousness of God in Him. Oswald Chambers wrote, The idea that Christ died for me, and therefore I go scot-free, 
is never taught in the New Testament. What is taught in the New Testament is that he died for all, not he died my death, and that by identification with his death, I can be freed from sin and have imparted to me his very righteousness." Unquote. We must be careful not to cheapen the grace of God by saying that our sin is too great or that the death and resurrection of Christ is too small to make a true difference in our life. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of His solidarity with us in our sinful condition, we are enabled by faith to actually become the righteousness of God. Well, maybe you're asking yourself, well, you know, this is all fine and good, but what difference does this really make? Does our interpretation of verse 21 really make a difference in my spiritual life or in my daily life? I am convinced that it does make a difference. You see, for years I read Paul's words in verse 21 and in other passages, and I accepted the view that Paul was telling us that Christ died instead of me. It didn't make sense to me, but I was told that Christ, that Paul meant that Christ was substituted for me. He took my place. And I could never really understand what difference that actually made in my life. I thought, well, if Christ died instead of me, I suppose that I need to do my best to make him proud of me. I, I suppose I owe him some type of, of debt of gratitude for what he did for me. And so then I would do my very best to live right because he died instead of me. But I constantly failed. I constantly failed. Somehow within my thoughts, it seemed like the death of Christ in my place only gave me more life. I was able to live longer because Christ died instead of me. But his death and resurrection didn't seem to help me to live a better life. But this is not what Paul is saying at all. Christ did not die, and Christ was not raised again just so that I could have more life. He died and was raised again so that I could live a better life in Him. Christ died and was raised again so that I could live a life of true righteousness before God. This is why Paul describes the Christian life in Galatians as being a victorious life, free from sin, lived in Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Paul is saying that a believer who lives in Christ is not a slave of sin. Then Paul goes on to say in the same chapter of Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ died for us. He gave himself on our behalf. He gave himself so that we could live in and through him in his resurrected life. Paul does not tell us to simply try our best to live a good life because of some sense of gratitude to Christ because he died in our place. No. Paul describes the Christian life as a life of participation in Christ. Christ died and was raised on our behalf so that we could be raised and live a life of victory in Christ. This is our salvation.
This is what our salvation means. Christ did not die instead of us so that we could somehow be saved and then just try our hardest to prove ourselves worthy of his death. Rather, Christ identified himself so completely with us in our sin that he became sin for us. And he died as our representative. He participated in our life to the fullest so that we can participate in his life to the fullest. Christ participated in our life, experiencing the fullness of our sin and of our death, so that in Him we can participate in His life, experiencing the fullness of His righteousness and His salvation. This is why Paul says that we are the body of Christ. This is why Paul says that we live in Christ. Our solidarity with Christ through faith not only brings us the forgiveness of sins, our solidarity with Christ also guides and directs and empowers our life with His life. In Christ, we actually live for Christ as He lives in and through us. Hear the word of the Lord. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow worker, I urge you this day, do not receive God's grace in vain.